0: This is Dear Analyst episode number 36 and in this episode I'm going to be discussing a forecast for the presidential upcoming 2020 presidential elections built by the economist and this forecast i first heard about this forecast from i believe it was from another podcast and the data editor for the economist his name is dan rosenheck he talked about the podcast he talked about the the forecast and i looked a little more into it and it turns out this is a really robust forecast and uh, they take into account a lot of different factors and variables and different type of modeling situations to Forecast who is going to win the twenty twenty election, and I'm not really that interested, to be honest, in the actual outcome. I'm more interested in the actual model itself, and I think a lot of what they talk about, they they detail the forecast and their methodology in this um in a in a post, and I'll share it in the show notes. I think what's interesting is how these how the different variables they account for can be applied to your own forecast whether you're forecasting sales forecasting inventory or in this case the result of a presidential election the f- big big caveat here that i'm gonna disclose right up front is that this is definitely a little bit above my pay grade and not the typical things i talk about on this podcast um, this definitely gets into the realm of data science and uh, statistical programming and a lot of topics I'm not very familiar with, but I think with any type of new topic, um, I like to challenge myself and you all should also challenge yourself in trying to learn new things and hopefully pick up some new skills when it comes to analyzing data, because as we all know, big data and data science is all the rage now. And so I think the more uh, knowledgeable and accustomed you are to all the different terminology and vocabulary in this in this realm will just make you a better analyst in the future if you decide to pursue a career in data science in data modeling um, or statistical analysis all right so let's go ahead and get started with um, this looking at this uh, how this forecast works so again i'll share the the, the post that was written by um, I'm not sure who actually wrote the post, but uh, the data editor, like I said, his name is Dan Rosenheck from The Economist, um, but it looks like most of the model was developed by Andrew Gelman and Merlin Heidemans, um, political scientists at Columbia University. And also just co- from looking at the source code, um, they also open source the model. Um, there's another gentleman by the name of Elliot Morris. I'm not sure where he's from, but... I'm assuming maybe he's somewhat related to The um, the Economist. Let's just take a look here. Oh, no, he's also, he's yeah, he's a data journalist for The Economist. And, yeah, the model relies on two different uh, open source technologies. One is R, and another one is Stan. Now, I've heard of R. We use R a lot internally in my company. And Stan, I've actually never heard of Stan, so I actually had to look these things up. And... At a high level, R is a statistical, I guess, programming language and environment for computing and graphics, whereas Stan is a uh, also a prop, a programming language, um, and it's used for statistical modeling and computation. And I think there's a lot of overlap, um, but I think at a very high level, R is, I would say, falls into a language. And Stan is more of a machine learning tool, and this is again based on some high-level research on um, online. So, again, you know this is again, a little bit outside my my realm of expertise. So, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but the blog post, um, the post really goes in detail how they built this forecast, and I think a lot of different variables. Um, a lot of the different things I wanted to call out here and a few things I heard um, Dan Rosenhek talk about when it comes to the uniqueness of this forecast. So the at a high level, the three different uh, features that separate this presidential forecast from other forecasts is that they use machine learning to create equations. And then this is what, where I think the Stan... Uh, programming environment comes into play is they use mis- machine learning to create uh, equations to model what's going to happen in the future so that's number one um, we'll talk a little bit more about the machine learning a little a little bit later in this episode they also you are more cautious on how reliable polls are um, these are polls you know showing like who's gonna win uh, six months out or three months out or Ten months out, um, so I think when they look, what I think what they're saying is that they're more cautious, cautious about polls that are being used early on in twenty twenty. So perhaps like in Q one of twenty twenty, um, they're they don't believe they put less weight on the reliability of those polls um, that are happening early on in the cycle. We're obviously now almost into uh, we're into July into August, so the polls now are going to be more um, important for the forecast and we'll see that later in this in this um, in this model and finally one one bias that they account for which I've never heard about actually um, but it makes a lot of sense when you when I hear it and I read about it um, in this post is something called partisan non-response bias now what is that it's when there's unusually good or bad news uh, about one side, whether it's about the Democrats or Republicans. And what happens is that unusually good or bad news will cause supporters of that candidate in that party to be more likely or unlikely to pick up the phone when a pollster calls them or when they're asked to fill out a poll online. And how they account for this bias and model, I don't know. I mean, this is definitely more deep into the code. But just the fact that there is this bias, I mean, you hear about confirmation bias and self-selection bias and all those other kind of biases. But when it comes to a presidential poll, or sorry, a presidential election, this type of uh, non-response bias is something that has to be accounted for. And they call it out in the, the model, but I think I think what they say later on in the post is that um, – under normal circumstances, the partisan non-response bias doesn't have a huge effect on the forecast. So maybe that could change this cycle because there is a lot of things that are not normal circumstances, as we know with the uh, the virus and uh, the Black Lives Matters movement and just everything else that's going on in the world, economic downturn. Um, but again, there's this bias that uh, is something to think about and could be useful in accounting for other elections whether it's state elections local elections any type of election any type of uh, event or outcome where you're polling a sample of people where um, they could be swayed to answer the poll depending on how what the news is uh, supporting or not supporting you know their beliefs in this case supporting or not supporting uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump Uh, Yeah, so I talked about how they, in this post, they talk about how, interestingly, polls in the first half of the year are surprisingly a very weak predictor uh, based on their modeling for what the actual results are. And actually, in the show notes, um, I include a a chart that shows how um, the, the polls actually are really, really bad up until actually, it looks like July or August, right around this time is when the polls are starting to be more accurate. But from January through June, the raw polling data is actually very in uh very bad at predicting what the outcome will be in November. Um, in this case, you know, January through June twenty twenty. So if you're looking if you've been looking at polls and thinking those polls are accurate, then the data shows otherwise. Uh, and the I think the two things that drive this model are they talk about using polling data so polling data throughout the year not like one time two times obviously and using different sources for polling data and number two what they call uh fundamentals and they reference um another forecaster's uh model um uh, let me see what his name is alan abram uh, alan abramowitz uh, he's a political scientist at Emory University, and they found that his model that used primarily fundamentals. And what are fundamentals? Uh, these are like just things that you think about that are outside of polling that would be indicators that help predict the presidential election. So in Alan Abramowitz's model, he used the president's approval rating, uh, GDP growth, and whether or not the incumbent was running for election. So you can think about all these different variables outside of polls that would be considered fundamentals. And so this the economist model is based on these two core uh, variables, polling and fundamentals. And the chart that I read just talked about um, in terms of sh- showing how early polls are a bad indicator of forecasting the outcome of an election uh, is shows really clear in this chart because there is a line from January through November that shows how accurate the um, fundamentals are with predicting the forecast. And that's a, pretty much a steady line from January through November. And then the raw polling data like starts out, starts out being very uh, overconfident and then kind of slowly dips down and then eventually kind of uh, slowly starts to even out with the fundamentals line. And so that's why I think in the model, they talk about how the, well, actually I'll just get, I'll talk a little bit more about the setting up for the model and then we'll talk about why um, the fundamentals matter more than the polling data for forecasting the, um, the outcome of a presidential election. All right, so let's get into this topic of overfitting data. They talk about this in depth in how the model, the forecast is constructed. And a common mistake with a lot of forecasts is that, and this is probably more common with other forecasts that try to predict the outcome of a presidential election, is that forecasters will use formulas to create equations that overfit, uh, the, the formula will overfit to past results, historical historical results. And that ends up being a really bad way to predict future outcomes because, you um, you're creating like a very detailed formula with a bunch of coefficients and variables that overfits to historical data and ends up being a bad predictor for future data. Now, I must assume that forecasters are taking into account, like if I had to forecast future data, what would this, how could I tweak my formula a little bit? But ultimately I think it ends up being this uh, game of just trying to take all the historical data and finding the perfect equation that models through all those previous results. And that ultimately, in, in the economist's view, very poor at predicting future future outcomes for presidential elections. And so what the economist uses, as I mentioned in, earlier, is that they use machine learning to get around this. And they're basically training data, uh, I believe it was 20,000 20, times a day, uh, or creating 20,000 different paths to see how the uh the presidential election could uh res- would result be what the result would be of a presidential election and they talk about two different i suppose they're two different concepts um that uh, that they use with their machine learning model um and these techniques are Kind of like complicated in terms of like their names, but uh, I'll just kind of describe what they say in the post. So the two different techniques they use in the machine learning are elastic net regularization, regularization, and all that simply means is that they are they're taking these really complicated equations that other forecasters might use to overfit the data, and they really simplify the equations by reducing the reducing um, the the impact of certain variables in the equations, or they might actually redu- remove entire variables from the equation that have a weak uh, impact on the outcome. Um, so let's just assume that this mo- this technique just simplifies the equations and removes a lot of noise from the equation. Then there's a second technique called leave-one-out cross-validation. Now, this is, I think, a little more interesting. And essentially, it converts the entire data set into multiple pieces or chunks, like they call it. And they train models on every single chunk. And then those models, they'll test the performance of those models on other pieces, other chunks of data. Now, what does that mean in the context of this uh, economist forecast? So they looked at all election data from 1952 to to 2016 so every four years and they created a stripped down model and they would take all those chunks do training models on them and then based on those training models try to predict what would happen in 1948 the first time um i believe i forgot why they chose 1948 oh the first time there was a presidential election after um after a big war so they're taking all data except for the year they're trying to forecast, and then trying to predict that that year's election based on all these different training models uh, from other years. Uh, so this is kind of interesting because I think you've I've seen this before done in a, like in, in a finance perspective where you have all these data sets for historical data, you take that data, and then build a model to forecast what 2010 sales would have been what 2012 uh, product usage would have been um, using f- historical data that you have outside of the period you're trying to forecast pretty pretty common forecasting uh, technique in this case we're using machine le- machine learning to forecast what every single year's outcome would have been with their their model. And let's see here, they, they repeat the cycle 100 times to figure out which amount of, they call it shrinkage. And I think that shrinkage applies to the elastic net regularization, where they try to remove variables from the equation to forecast what the outcome will be. And at the end of the day, and this goes back to that, that first chart I was talking about um, in the show notes, is the model found that the fundamentals, again, these are things like GDP, President's, president's approval rating. Um, over time I would su- I would assume those fundamentals are a much better predictor uh, for the outcome for the presidential election up until early June and into July <clears throat> And then <clears throat> excuse me and then after June, the polling data like these are polling data from you know ABC, Washington Post polling data plus the fundamentals ends up being a better predictor. But then in the final week, right before the actual vote, right before the actual election, the model tends to favor polling data to be a better predictor of um, of the results. So I can see this like over time from January to November 2020, you have fundamental and polls. And the model will basically rely on fundamental. Uh, Fundamentals up until June. So you kind of have like a mix of like fundamentals and polls. I like assume like it's 80 20 fundamental to polls up until June. And then it might be like 50 50 from June through November. And then November it's going to be like 80 20 polls to fundamentals. So you can see kind of like there's uh, different weights applied to these two different drivers of the forecast. So I think that's kind of interesting. And that's something that uh, only this uh, machine learning model was able to. To, to figure out to f- find which, uh, how much weight to essentially give to the polling data versus the fundamental data. Um, I didn't really quite understand this aspect of the model um, in terms of how what technique was used, but essentially they are saying that the model, what it's really good at is not uh, not at predicting the actual percent that. You know, Trump might win over Biden, or Biden might win over Trump. But rather, it's really good predicting the uh, confidence interval or the margin of error, as they call it, and essentially predicting the amount of uncertainty that we should expect with um, with the forecast. And I think this amount of uncertainty is like a really important concept. I've seen this kind of talked about in all different kinds of books and materials. If you've, uh, you know, I think I talked about super forecasting uh, a while of, like. A while back, about how the um, a lot of these forecasters, they're able to predict within like a one percent, like a one percent uh, confidence uh, band. Like they're able to, if the actual forecast is fifty one percent, they're able to predict that their band of confidence is like between fifty point five and then fifty one point five, and they're like, this is my confidence rule. and the result ends up being fifty one percent. So this model is really good at predicting that level of uncertainty uh, with the percent that a given candidate will win in November. Now the post now gets into more interesting topics of state predictions. So getting from the U S down to the state levels. And this is, um, I think this is like a pretty standard uh, the data they use to, feed into the state prediction model is pretty standard they look at nine different factors that impact whether a state poll will influence voter preferences in other states with varying amounts so what that means is they if if minnesota and wisconsin if they both have a i'm just going to bring up the post now to um See exactly what those nine factors are. So, if Madison, sorry, if if Minnesota and Wisconsin have, uh, let's see, the same number of, uh, the the same kind of similar racial racial makeup, educational attainment, median age, the average number of people living within five square miles of the average resident in the state. Um, they also look at these the percent of um, white and evangelical Christians and the data sets they use are just like simple CSVs that have all this data by state and so they take these nine different factors and they're able to base what they say is that if two states have similar demographics then they're more likely to vote along the same party lines and so that's something they take into account with the um, with the model and what's interesting is that if uh Madison I don't know, I keep my thing about Madison, if Wisconsin and Minnesota are, are very similar, then the likelihood of of polls and fundamentals in in Wisconsin would greatly impact Minnesota. But they also look at the correlation between Wisconsin and every other state in the United States. The only difference is that Wisconsin And New York might be very, very different in terms of all these nine different factors. But the correlation between the two would just be very low, and the number, the the, uh, voter preferences between those two won't be very similar. And so the effect, the influence that Wisconsin has in New York in terms of like how likely those two would vote in the same line would just be reduced in this model. So imagine that every state has an influence on all other states in the United States. And, but the influence just in, in varying amounts, depending on how similar the demographics are. Uh, again, not, not sure how exactly they took that into account in the model, but we'll trust that, that these nine factors were uh, utilized um, to find correlations between different states. So that's how they got to the state predictions. And there's a really cool chart um, I also show in the, <laughs> in the notes of how correlated uh, states are with each other. And it's kind of like a basic like uh, nine by nine matrix and um, like Ohio and Wisconsin are very tightly correlated. So are Ohio and Michigan. Um, But then Nevada and Wisconsin are very um, are not tightly correlated. So you can see this kind of model of how how much influence the states (coughs) voter preferences in one state will influence another another states depending on their demographics. Um, so I thought, I thought that was a really interesting visualization to show this correlation between states. Finally, uh, talking a little bit more about uh, partisan non-response bias. Again, uh, kind of an interesting bias here to, that the economists place into their forecast. Uh, they did say, again, that it's most likely won't have a huge impact on the forecast. I'm not sure why um, why that is, but I think it's based on just like uh, the normal circumstances, and I'm sure uh, circumstances surrounding the surrounding the election, um, but who knows exactly how much impact this bias has on the on the the outcome. And let me see what my my notes here. The probability that give a given potential poll respondent will agree to participate in a survey does not remain constant over time. So that's kind of interesting. So you take anyone. Out of a state, <clears throat> ask them to respond to a poll. The economist is basically saying that that the probability of that person responding to that poll f- between January through November is going to change, and so you have you can't uh, <clears throat> you can't take the result from January and just apply that through through November. Um, the this the, the economist's model takes it into account. The different probabilities that the uh, voter may or may not <coughs> respond to the poll over time, and this of course will affect polls. Uh, what I really like about this, um, the detail that they put into this model is that they are, the Economist is looking at all these different polls, uh, you know, ABC, Washington Post, etc., and looking at the poll results over time. And seeing if the change in the poll, seeing what the changes in the polls over time, to to make corrections to the their model, assuming that there may be partisan non-response bias. So if they see that the polls are changing from you know twenty percent Republican to eighty percent Republican from January to February, that means that something happened in the news that led to more poll more voters wanting to respond to polls because they might have saw more positive news about Republicans and what they're doing to, you know, change the the tide of the economy. And that would basically confirm partisan non-response bias. And then the economists basically have to temper down the impact of that 80% rating for Republicans in February because of uh, news that may have caused that higher, uh, Polling turnout, I guess you could say. Um, so I think it's really cool that they're looking at the poll results over time to account for this um, this bias. Uh, okay, so finally, to top it all off, um, this is a subject I don't know anything about. Um, I've only heard about it um, in you know certain usages of Excel. I'm sure many of you out there have used this um, these modeling, this type of uh, modeling before, but it's Monte Carlo simulations. Uh, but more specifically, in the the Economist forecast, they use something called the Markov Chain Monte Carlo simulation, MCMC. And they explore thousands of different values for every single parameter in their model, and then evaluate how well those uh, parameters explain patterns in the data, and how plausible they are given expectations from their prior. So this is a huge mouthful, but essentially, they are doing twenty thousand simulations every single day, and look and accounting for all different parameters, variables in their model, and in those simulations, seeing how well those simulations explain patterns in their data. And they also talk about in this post about how they use um, uh, Bayesian statistics um to uh to forecast their state polling um so they have priors and a prior in terms of like Bayesian inference and this is still stuff I remember learning it for my like stats class and like uh freshman year in college they have prior predictions about what's going to happen based on the current data new data comes in that what they call posterior data and that new or posterior predict that the new data comes in it's going to affect their posterior prediction and so this uh, training data these simulations will essentially help them create a posterior prediction from their prior predictions so yeah the just going to trust that they're using this really interesting Monte Carlo simulation to create these, mul- these thousands of simulations per day. And this one last tidbit that I found interesting um, in terms of how this model works is that these 20,000 simulations, they give the model uh, leeway or some slack to what they call have random drift. So every day these simulations may you know move the prediction for you know, Trump or Biden up and down by a little bit every single day. But as we get closer to November, the amount of drift, the amount of variation in that prediction is going to decrease over time. And that drift will just get smaller and smaller every single day until we get to the last week of the elections last week in November, where, According to economists, they're going to rely primarily on polling data to figure out the forecast. All right, so that's um, that is really the gist of the forecast. I mean, when I say gist, there's a lot of different things going on here, um, but I think the th- key takeaways are they're relying on polling data, poll polling data over time, and relying on fundamentals data again GDP, how the economy is doing, the president's uh, presidential rating, all different kinds of uh, Economic data, and using those two different variables in different amounts over time to predict what the presidential election, what the outcome will be of the presidential election of the presidential election. So that's really the key takeaway here. A lot of different things to explore, and I would highly recommend reading through the entire post um, because, again, I think in addition to learning how they are using this these models and these variables to forecast um the presidential election this has give this has shed light to me on different things to think about when you're forecasting other things outside of presidential elections again and, and from my perspective it's um forecasting product usage because I um, you know we're trying to my company we're internally trying to figure out how to predict whether someone's going to take a certain action inside the product whether or not they're going to sign up for the product whether or not they're going to abandon at some point in time during the onboarding process, you're always trying to forecast something, and you know you don't have to be using Monte Carlo simulations or machine learning to do all these things. But just reading through this post gives you some ideas on different things to think about when it comes to when it comes down to like figuring out whether or not someone's going to take an action somewhere down the line. And in this case, it's a very kind of binary type of decision. It's like whether one side is going to win on a certain day uh, in November. Uh, one last thing I wanted to point out is I, I did take a quick look through the source code for that The Economist also released with their post. Um, it's uh, The repo is called US-POTUS-Model. And there is one chart that I found really interesting that I, sh- I share in the show notes is the, I just want to make sure I get the name of this chart right. It is a, well, number one, it's a very interesting data visualization, so definitely take a look at this chart in the show notes. Um, I'm only going to try to explain this um, with so many words. It's a model, it's a chart that shows model results versus polls versus the prior. So imagine a a XY chart where you have states along the Y axis, so you have Wisconsin, Texas, Pennsylvania, and down through the rest of the y axis. And then along the x axis, you have the polling percentage. And there are these dots along the x axis for every state. And the dots are color coded by model, poll, prior, and result. So essentially, that dot represents what percent, uh, what was the poll response for that specific category whether it's model poll prior result again model is the economist model the poll is the actual polling number that they got from you know public information the prior is the um, bayesian prediction that they had before the data came in and then the result is just the actuals the result that comes in um fitting to the model so they're looking at this data um in the repo they're looking at it from 2008 through 2016 for those three different elections. And what I found really interesting, and this is not news to us if you were following the 2016 election, is that the the spacing out of the dots, how spaced apart they are on the x-axis, indicates how wide of variability and uncertainty there was with the model the polls, the prior, and the actual final result. If you look at 2000, uh, 2008 and 2012, with um, with uh, the Obama election, like all those dots are pretty relatively clustered close together, indicating that the the results of the poll, the model, the res- the prior pretty much match closely with the final results that occurred in that election. But when we come to 2016 with the Trump election, like I'm looking at, for instance, Iowa, the, the, res, the, the uh, prior was around 50. It looks like around 53%. The model predicted a percent of around 49% polling. The actual poll results was, 47%, but the actual result was 45%. So we have a range between 45 and almost 53% in terms of the actual poll. Now, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what poll on the x-axis, x-axis means. I think it means just like the likelihood of picking that party, um, but I'm not 100% sure. But I think what the key takeaway I saw from comparing the 2008-2012 and 2016 charts. Actually, I'll put all three charts in the final post. Is that the clustering of dots, the clustering of the different models and the actuals and the priors and the polling, were much closer together in 2008 and 2012, but 2016 was that variability in 13 was super great, and that's why, uh, perhaps that's why uh, Donald Trump won won the election. Um, but you know we'll see what happens with the upcoming election in 2020 with how variable these results are. And if uh, history shows that these, uh, uh, if the 2016 is an indication of 2020, then we might be in store for a very uncertain and variable uh, election based on the model here. Okay, so that um, that wraps up this episode. I know the, not didn't really talk anything about the actual model itself in terms of the nitty-gritty, in terms of the, you know, the the r packages they use and the libraries they use and the the way they did the statistical analysis with stan um that those topics are definitely far outside of my realm but i think the core concepts behind the behind the forecast were much more interesting for me at least to read about and learn about um for the purposes of thinking about how i want to approach forecasting in the future all right so the uh the second half of the second half of the this episode i wanted to talk about a, a an episode from the software software engineering daily podcast um, and this is the episode with uh, it's called data intensive applications with martin klepman and martin kleppman he wrote a book uh, about this topic it's called designing data intensive applications the big ideas behind reliable scalable and maintainable systems and the reason i bring this up again this is a little bit getting outside the realm of my comfort zone in terms of uh interest of topics that i'm familiar with you know i'm normally talking about excel topics and analyzing things in excel and writing excel formulas uh, but so many of these topics are so related to one another so i found this topic interesting and just was more learning when i was listening to this this episode but around minute 28 um the uh the they start talking about Martin start talking about um when to use a row store. What are the types of uh, conditions or general rules to use a row store versus columnar store with your data storing technology? So just to kind of a quick background with a row store. That's when you think about your traditional like relational databases. You have maybe a snowflake or star schema, and you have multiple tables that relate to each other, and you're just running you know, SQL queries to make joins and getting data to spit back out in terms of the data that you want. Uh, but the problem is that if you have a lot of data, and this is usually most data now, which is, which is a lot of data, big data, you have millions and millions, maybe billions of rows of data and a traditional relational database or they call them OLTP databases, uh, are not very performant in terms of uh, returning the data that you want or aggregating the data that you want. And that's when you go to a column a columnar, I don't know if I can say this word, a columnar store. And a columnar store is more, uh, you'll see this more with the NoSQL type of database solutions out there where you don't have this notion of uh, rows where it's, you just have columns of data and in, inside those columns you might have different objects of data that you can sort through and aggregate through and it ends up being much more performant to get data out and aggregate and summarize data so for instance if you have an app And you have millions and millions of users, and you want to quickly find the... I think in the episode they talk about, like, what if I want to find the the average time my users are spending on the app? Then to comb through those millions of rows of data in a regular relational database would be super slow. And unfortunately, for most apps that you want to get real-time data on... You don't you can't you don't have the luxury of like waiting a few seconds or a minute to get that data to summarize. You want that data instantly in the app when the user is clicking on it. And so that's why you would rely on a commerce or no sequel solution to uh, to get that data get the data out. Um, whereas if you're trying to just trying to find um, the uh, The all you're trying to find all the user data for a list of 10 users who have recently made a purchase. That's when you might rely on a relational database type to pull that data out and you want to get like, you know, 30 different attributes about that user. That's when that row traditional database will be more important. Now here's the rub. So later on in this in this episode, Marn talks about well, in most companies now you'll have both solutions. And the reason is because sometimes you need the traditional database solution, the OLTP data uh, solution for internal usage because you have business analysts and you have data analytics people that need to just do like simple queries on the data for reporting purposes, for internal reporting purposes to make business decisions. These are really important decisions to make. And what you end up doing is you have this relational database where you have to store the data in the database, do these OLTP transactions on the data, so that you have uh, your your data warehouse has all the data it needs, so that these analysts can do things. Now, how does that data get into the data warehouse? Well, we have this concept called ETL, a very common concept for database engineers: extract, transfer, and load. So let's just talk about how that data gets into that database for now. Uh, whole other topic, but, you know, you have batch and streaming data. Historically, batching was a pretty common practice where uh, data would come literally in batches from, you know, devices or from, um, you know, IoT IoT devices, things on the edge, and then you would have some type of uh, job that crunches through those batches and then puts that data into a format that's good for the data warehouse. Now, more, more recently, most data now is coming in a real-time streaming, streaming kind of uh, format. And so you have different tools for accounting for the streaming format, streaming data. It's like literally real time coming in that has to crunch that data, format it, and put it into the data warehouse. So that's like the ETL process. So you have that data for the data warehouse for analysts to crunch on. And that's traditionally what most of you out there, business analysts, are doing your SQL, Excel reporting on to pull that data and put it into a report for upper management to make decisions. Um, Now Martin talks about the necessity for that data to be also used for uh, the actual front end of your app or your website. So now you have to do another ETL process to take that data from the batch and streaming and convert it into a NoSQL or columnar store so that other applications that are meant for maybe external use can quickly pull that data out and then summarize it and push it out to the app. Um, Ultimately, this type of architecture, I'm not sure how... um, I mean, I'm not a database engineer, so I'm not sure how companies get around it, but my my gut feeling is that most companies that have a data-intensive application, whether it's a website or mobile app, uh, are doing both. They have to have a traditional database to store all this data, and they also need to have a a columnar store, basically a replica of that data, to do the summarizing the data for the applications that are being used by the actual users. And so, how quickly that data gets replicated, I'm pretty sure there's probably some delays in the reporting. Is I'm not sure how they do that, but um, there's definitely a delay, and I'm really curious how database engineers are getting around that delay in terms of replicating data so that there's what they call, I guess, eventual consistency between the database store, the traditional data, database store, and then the, uh, the columnar store. So, that's um, some interesting just food for thought if you're a database engineer out there um, how you how you're thinking about um, replicating data and moving it to your different uh, data stores I come across it sometimes with internally at our company but not too often um, but I think it's interesting just knowing how really any kind of high, uh, data-intensive mobile app is being utilized these days, how that infrastructure is built for the mobile app. Uh, super interesting to see how data is being streamed in, processed, transformed, and loaded into the data warehouse, and then also into this column restore uh, for ultimate um, display on these mobile applications or for analysis by the data analyst, him or her self. Um, so that is, the, that is it for... Um, this, uh, another episode I want to talk about on this podcast. Um, I believe there are certain solutions out there. Uh, I think, um, in Google cloud, there actually is a, I forgot what the tool is called. No sequel, Google cloud. I believe they have some kind of solution that like tries to mimic the, um, or tries to get the best of both worlds of like getting column restore plus row store, uh, so you have like NoSQL plus like you have the benefits of NoSQL plus the benefits of SQL. I think it's BigTable. I don't know BigTable is NoSQL. Okay, yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing some data data product where they they're able to combine the benefits of a SQL plus NoSQL database. Um, actually, it might be Cloud Datastore. Anyways, long story short. AWS, Google, Google Cloud, um, Azure, they're all doing different, they all have really kind of like SQL specific solutions. So like, you know, traditional data stores, like Google's Google is just like, uh, I think it's like called cl- uh, Cloud Spanner or something like that. AWS has um, R- RDS. Um, they also have the NoSQL products, but then they also have the hybrid that tries to take the benefit of both. And how performant that is for your website or app, that's um, to be determined. But my guess is that that just kind of is the all-in-one solution versus if you have to kind of have both the SQL and NoSQL solution, that's when you have to deal with that eventual consistency problem of trying to get the two to mash together. Um, but there's probably more, those two solutions living in silos is probably more performant for your inter- internal data needs and for your external uh, users all right i think i've babbled on long enough about things i don't know uh, so that's going to wrap up this episode of your uh, analyst